Hello, Paul Teague here with one of those occasional pre-show introductions I like to record. This time it's not because I'm swearing or doing anything unpleasant like that. I just wanted to flag up that we had lots and lots of audio problems when we recorded this interview. Skype really wasn't very happy, so um, you won't know most of the edits, but we did actually have to switch about a third, two thirds of the way through because the Skype signal just kept dropping out and I gave up on it and we recorded it via the telephone. So I, I've done whatever I can to, to clean up the audio and I've had a listen through and it is easy to listen to, but I just wanted to flag that up that um, we do have some audio issues today. I'm aware of them, but Skype was doing its best to wreck the interview, uh, but we battled through and we managed to get to the end. So it's a great interview with Debbie. There's loads of interesting stuff in there as per usual. Let's cue the music and you can listen for yourself. You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 119 for Monday the 6th of August 2018. My guest on today's show is Debbie Young, who many of you will know through her work for the Alliance of Independent Authors. Now, Debbie writes warm, witty, feel-good contemporary fiction inspired by life in the English village where she lives. The fifth in her series of Sophie Sayers Village Mysteries will launch in September 2018. Debbie also writes short stories and has published three themed collections, Marion Haste, Quick Change and Stocking Fillers. There is some non-fiction in her writing repertoire too. When we chatted for the podcast, I began by asking Debbie what she prefers writing, short stories, fiction or factual books. If I had to choose only one that I would write ever again, it would be fiction and it would be long form fiction. I started off writing the short stories to get into my stride, really, to kind of find my voice and find my confidence. Um, uh, like yourself, I was a, a journalist um, before I became a writer. I'd done all kinds of careers in the in the commercial world. I'd worked in PR, I'd worked in marketing. And although I'd always wanted to be a writer from when I was a, a very little girl, um, I found careers in which I could write all kinds of things in all kinds of guises and get paid for it now <laughs> until until a few years ago that was that was not books that was more to more likely to be things like uh, press releases websites brochures um, articles features for magazines that sort of thing and so when I started writing fiction and started taking it seriously or taking myself seriously as a, as a potential author it was a fairly natural leap for me to go for short form stuff it's also or partly because i was used to writing to a very specific length you know sort of a couple of thousand words for an article or whatever a couple of pages for a press release um so that came very naturally to me and i was used to having these sort of short pieces and then polishing 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 them with the editing to get the words exactly right and so it was not a very um big jump to start writing short form fiction um, I'd always written a few short stories. Oh, in fact, I've got quite a lot of short stories tucked away. I keep discovering more that I'd forgotten mm. that I'd written, sort of tucked away in my in my archive, in my study. And so I'd always written short stories. And I've, like everybody else, I've got a few sort of half novels tucked away that will never see the light of day. Um, 
But um, I then, when I started publishing short stories myself, rather than having them published in magazines, because I had a few acceptances from women's magazines over the years, um, I wanted to write more than just one short story. I wanted to have themed collections so that the the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts, you know. So, for example, my collection about um, love and marriage is is uh, called Marry in Haste, and there are five stories about dating, five about getting married, and five about staying the course long term, staying married long term. And so they were kind of sort of the short stories are kind of starting to feel a bit more like novel form, in that I was I was putting together longer collections and then a few years ago I decided that I really wanted to it was time to go for it otherwise I'd start running out of life before I could write the novels that I'd always wanted to write and so I had a first stab at writing a novel um, for NaNoWriMo actually about four years ago. It's really interesting Uh, many people start that way. It's such a good institution isn't it it's Mm. brilliant because it it makes you first of all it makes you accountable so you admit to yourself as well as to the world that that's what you want to do and that's what you're going to do. It gives you a deadline. And whether you actually achieve the 50,000 words in the in the 30 days of, of, of in the month of November, which is what NaNoWriMo is all about, whether you actually achieve that or not, actually, I don't think matters that much. It just makes you suddenly start thinking of yourself as an author and making the commitment to becoming one. Um, so I wrote this this novel about six years, no, about four years ago. I wrote a novel for NaNoWriMo and I think I managed about 40,000 words, but that was still a lot more than I'd written for one story before because my short stories are a lot of them are quite sort of flash fictiony really you know they're sort of under a thousand words up to a thousand words and um so having complete or complete or finished got to the end of november without necessarily completing the fifty thousand words i'd at least got the shape of the novel and and a rough draft of the novel first draft of the novel um and I put it away in the drawer, as they always say you should. <laughs> I don't know why the drawer is so important, but they always say put it away in the drawer. Um, so I, I, I then came back to it in about January. And I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, I like the story and I like the premise, but actually it needs a prequel. And then I looked at it again and I thought, no, no, no. Actually, the, the whole story of this this heroine that I had who, who then eventually morphed into Sophie Sayers, who's now the central character of my Sophie Sayers mystery series. Um, I thought, no, 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 we need to go back a little bit further. So actually this this book the first book that i wrote that's now going to end up as the sixth yeah. in the series because i decided i need to develop her sort of her backstory and her character a lot lot more and um and so i've just finished today in fact just finished typing up the first draft of the fifth novel in the sophie sayers village mystery series and so that original nanowrimo story that's going to be number six which i shall start writing properly i shall rewrite it completely um later this year um so it's kind of a roundabout route that I've arrived at the writing of the novels, but it's something that I just love doing now. And in fact, I haven't written a short story for about a year or so, I think. Um, that's not to say I'm, I'm giving it up because I'm still very interested in short stories, uh, but I'm giving priority to the novels now, and particularly now that I've got a series going. Um and I want to start another series soon as well. I want to have a whole, whole load of plates spinning of different series. So I think that's, that's good commercially, as well as just being jolly good fun for a writer. There's loads to dig into over the next 50 minutes, but I feel like I don't know enough about you pre-writing. So you came into my sort of sphere, sphere of consciousness 
Um, it must have been at a Alliance of Independent Authors event several years ago. It must be four or yeah. five years ago, I think. Uh, and it was at, uh, what's that posh bookshop in London? Foils? Foils. Foils. Yes, yes. Uh, were, you, were you there? You must have been there. I, bought, <laughs> I was, yes. <laughs> it was um, It was a conference at the very They just moved to their new premises, I think, in, in Foils, um, because they're at the St. Martin, what was the St. Martin School of Art now, I think? Um beautiful lovely iconic building it's like sort of a, a, a the church of books you know <laughs> it's a wonderful building and we were right at the very top and there are about 100 or so of us i think um having talks by people from all, all over the place and i think that that time i was i was chairing a, a talk about um grants the availability of money for writers and i think i was interviewing peter erpeth from um a creative organisation in Scotland who is who does a wonderful job of sourcing funding for Scottish writers, and also Nicola Solomons, the uh, chair of uh, chief executive of the Society of Authors. I was talking to them both about grants, writing grants for would-be authors, and I think also at that point we were launching the Open Up to Indie Authors campaign. Mm. Um, uh, and the Authors for Bookstores campaign, no, I think it was the Authors for Bookstores campaign about encouraging authors to get involved with their local high street books, bookshops, um, their, their sort of bookstores in malls and that sort of thing, bricks and mortar bookstores, as they say in the trade, rather than relying upon the uh, online retailers, Amazon and all the usual suspects to um, purvey your books to the world um so yeah that was an exciting day that was an action-packed action-packed day with all kinds of interesting people speaking there so before then this is that's i say that's where you that's where i became aware of you the first time well when you said you were a, a journalist what kind of journalism were you doing features hard news bit of both bit of both it was it was actually um not very exciting no oh, oh come on deb you've got to do better than that <laughs> actually it i I, it was in my in my very young days. Uh, one of the first jobs I had was as um, a reporter for uh, a magazine called Telecommunications, which, when I was twenty something, I didn't think seemed particularly exciting. Looking back at it now, I'm thinking, my God, that was a very exciting time to be involved with that sort of thing because it was just as all the big um, national telecommunications bodies were um, denationalizing and the market was opening up and so it, it was um, moving away from the old days of British telecom or mm. British telecommunications um, and to uh, they were starting to, 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 to um, sort of liberalize everything mobile phones were starting to become um, popular uh, they were still the size of bricks in suitcases. <laughs> You know, charges the size of suitcases, that sort of thing. But I, so I worked in in that for a little while. First, of a, first as a sort of a um, sort of general reporter, and then I was news editor. Um, and then after about three years of doing that, I had a terrific time. Um, and and in fact, this is a common thread with all the jobs that I've had. I've packed in a lot into the time that I've spent in a job because they've been the kinds of jobs where you meet lots of different people, travel a lot, meet different people in. At all different levels and organisations. So, although I was in my twenties, I, I was interviewing sort of chief executives of of um, big organisations of Ericsson and and um, all those kinds of of companies that were just starting out then. Um, and I was I was having a wonderful time being. Uh, I had to go off to report the the branch of the magazine that I worked for was the inter is an American 
magazine. Um, I worked for the international edition, which meant like the rest of the world. So I had quite a nice few years going off to different parts of Europe covering um, different exhibitions and announcements and that sort of thing. Um, And I had jolly good fun. So and all this time, I was storing away different incidents that would later come in handy for when I started writing properly, writing novels and, and short stories and things. Um, so, so that was my first job. And then, or my first, my first proper job. I did a few things before then that are not really worth talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that was that was also in. Um, it was in central London. It was in Victoria. Um, just around the corner from Victoria Station. So I really felt that I was at the hub of things. So I worked for all kinds of um, public relations companies with different range of clients. Um, And looking back, it was pretty jammy in lots of ways in that some of the the most exciting experiences I had included having to go accompany a client uh, who ran a conference abroad every two years in an exotic place. So we had a, a conference in Hong Kong. We had an, a conference abroad, a border, um, a cruise ship going around the Caribbean. And looking back to some extent, I think, gosh, why did I walk away from that? <laughs> but actually, you can only do that that kind of thing for so long because you actually, you know, you're on your best behaviour the whole time. It's very artificial. And the writing, although I had fun writing press releases and I, I um, got quite a reputation for the many different interesting ways that I could write about cat litter, <laughs> various, various pet magazines, um, there comes a point when actually you want to start writing for yourself and you want to, you know, you have things that you want to, to tell the world and um so i i I, um my last job in public relations really was working for a local uh private school um i got tired of working in city center i moved down to the cotswolds um from london and was working in bristol but i i'd got weary of the long commutes um and found a job just up the road from where i live in very nice part of the cotswolds uh doing the pr and marketing for a a private school in a grade one listed former stately home i mean it's hard to get an office that's nicer than that and um so i went there for quite a long time Uh, But then just hit a significant birthday and thought, well, if I don't get my finger out and get on with this writing lark, I'm going to go to my grave with nothing but press releases and um, brochures to show for my writing talents and ambitions. So I made quite a radical decision to pack in that job without another job to go to. And um, I felt that I led quite a charmed life in that almost instantly I walked into another part-time job um, which was working for a children's reading charity which at that point was called Readathon is now is now known as Read for Good. Working at Readathon part-time was um, the best of both worlds really because it gave me lots of time to uh, plan my writing career and to start writing as well as uh, every day when I went into the office which was not very far away from where I lived so there wasn't a long commute to um, take up my time. Um, every day I was going in there and, and um, dealing with people who loved books, who loved reading, who loved writers, and who were convinced of the um, benefits of sharing good books. So that was a great way to um, really drive me forward to writing the books I wanted to write. Now, around about the same time as this was going on, Orna Ross was founding the Alliance of Independent Authors and our paths crossed um, 
just a couple of months after the founding, I think. And we, I, I think in, I initially spoke to her because of the readathon work, and I wanted to talk to her to see if we could involve independent authors and self-published authors in World Book Day, which is one of the big events in my calendar at work for for, for Read for Good, um, was the day when people all over the world celebrate books for children. And um, so we got chatting and before long, I'm still not entirely sure how this happened, she ended up inviting me to edit their blog. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's one of these people who will spot people that she wants to work with the with the alliance of independent authors and will persuade them that very quickly without them even realizing that that's really what they want to do <laughs> it's very special talent um, and um so i started writing at the same time as starting to write and self-publish my own books i started running the um author of what's become the author advice center a daily blog post on the self-publishing advice blog which is part of the alliance of independent authors network and uh what that entailed was commissioning a new blog post to be written every day, published every day, not not written by me, but at least commissioned by me from another independent author who was sharing best practice, sharing something, a particular piece of information um, or, or um, advice that they wanted to share with the wider community of self-publishing. As you well know, Paul, it's a, it's a very generous sharing kind of community. You know, people want to all help each other at whatever stage um, they are in their game. And so that really put me on the fast track to learning how to self-publish well, how to self-publish to professional standard. Um, and so I, I was learning by doing um, and getting the information from the best self-publishing authors all over the world, really. As you know, the um, Ally has a truly global membership. Um, we've got people all over the world, um, and they all come together. It's an online organisation, so which makes it very possible to share information um, without actually having to meet people in, in person. So I've got lots of contacts and all ally members have lots of contacts in every every continent um all sharing best practice answering each other's questions uh sharing top tips and advice and experiences um and as part of of my role there i also started writing some of the non-fiction i'd written some non-fiction before but i i started right co-authoring the series of guidebooks which um ally is publishing in increasing number i've got four on my bookshelf here in front of me that are, are, are great sources of reference um We've got one on um, how to choose the best self-publishing companies and services, one called Opening Up to Indie Authors, which is a little bit about lots of different things, how indie authors can work more effectively with different parts of the of the book ecology with, with festival organisers, bookshops, um, libraries and so on. We've got one called How Authors Sell Publishing Rights. I didn't write that one, that's by Orna and... Um, a, a lawyer called Helen Sedwick, and uh, one called How to Get Your Self-Published Book into Bookstores, which I did write. The, the, by the way, I should also say I didn't write the one about choosing publishing companies and services. That was by Jim Giamatteo and John Doppler, um, who are our watchdogs for Ally. 
at the same time, I think I mentioned when I started writing to try and discipline myself into writing regularly. Uh, when I first left my full-time job and went to work for Readathon, I committed to writing a regular column for each of two um, local magazines. One about as small scale as you can get, which is our local parish magazine. And the other one is a, is a monthly publication that goes to the nearest large town, Tetbury, um, which has a, has a readership of about 10,000. So they're small fry in the scheme of things, but what that those also help me establish the discipline of writing regularly, having to write to a deadline um, and to write on write for readers because I, I try to write something entertaining, possible, uh, with a local angle that will engage those local readers. And, and eight years on, I'm still doing that every month, still have fun. And it's been a great way to raise my profile locally. And it's led to lots of other things, sort of invitations to give talks and that sort of thing. And also to the compilation of two of my non-fiction books, which are two collections of essays from, I mean, the, the, I, I use those those columns, I turn them into blog posts on my blog. So I'm repurposing the material um, wildly with <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so i write it once for the for the tetbury advertiser and then it appears on my blog um once the magazine's been out a few times and then it goes into a book eventually as well so i keep doing those i've also started writing a couple of years ago for i don't know if you know the author's electric collective blog i Ooh, write i've heard of that one don't, don't know about that the author, if you Google Authors Electric, you'll find it. It's um, it's a, a number of, of authors. I think they're all British in different parts of the British Isles. And we each have a day of the month where we can write about anything we fancy. It's quite self it, it You have license to be self-promotional there. So whatever you write about, it, each post usually ends up with a bit of a plug for your books. <laughs> so it's, it's a, but it's another way of, of, of building an audience and driving people back to your own website as well, um, which I want what I think good book marketing is all about. It's about driving people back to your to your little domain, the little Bible of you on the internet. I've got to tell you, Debbie, um, listening to this, uh, this feels like a relentless schedule. You, you, you're telling me about the Alliance of Independent Authors. You've got all these things that you're committed to through the month. I mean, it just feels like it never stops to me. Do you, do you ever feel like that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> all the time. I'll tell you a few more things that I do as well. Um, I, I do... Um, I um, once a month I'm on the BBC Radio Gloucestershire lunchtime show um, co-hosting a book club programme which is terrific fun the breakfast show, uh, the lunchtime show host Dominic Cotter um, devotes the, an hour of his lunchtime show once a month and I'm on that with I appear alongside Caroline um, Sanderson who is the non-fiction editor of the bookseller magazine so we do a little sort of jolly three-way chat once a month so that's that's one lunchtime every month um, I run two different writers groups one in Bristol one in Cheltenham I sort of equidistant between them and so they're little meet-up groups in local bookshops and we talk once a month about all aspects of writing and self-publishing they're they, they became really really popular so I've had to constrain the um 
membership to people who are members of the Alliance of Independent Authors, um, just to try and keep them into uh, to um, manageable numbers. The, the, the bookshops that we meet in, Foils in Bristol, and the Anthology in Cheltenham, they were literally running out of chairs. <laughs> so, so I now limit the numbers. Um, I talk at quite a lot of uh, festivals and writers' events. Um, this last 10 days has been particularly ridiculous in that um, last Friday, uh, a, a Friday a week ago, I was um, on a panel for the new um, Cotswold Edge Lit Fest down in Yate, which is near Chipping Sobbury. Um I was then, what was I doing then? I went to um, Inverness from Tuesday to Thursday to speak at the um, Expo North um, Creative Arts Festival, which was fantastic, really interesting one, um, because it was including things like filmmaking and music um, and gaming and all kinds of arts, textiles as well. Um, so that was that was three days out to do that. Um, and on Friday of last week, I was giving a talk on how to market self-published books at the Evesham Festival of Words. Um, I don't usually do quite so many events <laughs> in one week um, because the trouble is it, I, I like to say yes to all of these things because they're always fun. You always meet interesting new people. They're always stimulating experiences. And the travel time is good thinking time for writing as well, for thinking up your ideas and developing your next chapter or whatever. Um, but prioritising is my biggest challenge because um, there are always so many interesting things that I could go off and do when actually what, the real thing I want to be doing is sitting at my desk writing my novels. Um, so it is, it is exhausting, um, but it's also a conscious decision. Um, my social life is basically my writing life, all these events I go off to, and I go to lots of other authors' events as well, lots of book launches and things. Um, I hardly ever watch television. It's, it's antisocial in some ways, but it, I've also made so many new friends since I've been involved with the Alliance of Independent Authors that I've, I've never had so many friends in all my life. You know? <laughs> so it's good fun. When I look at your list of books on Amazon, I get a very strong feeling of an author who's found her feet over that time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, thank you. That's that's a nice thing to say. And that's certainly how I feel. Um, because the I'm now having a terrific time writing this cosy mystery series. Um, I found my voice. I've I've found over the years I've discovered that I write best when I'm writing um with sort of a light humour. I I like to write with the sort of underlying moral messages the gentle moral messages, but also to have fun writing. So I like to write books that are a fun read. And having now written the, I published the fourth book in the, the Cozy Mystery series, Sophie Sayers Village Mysteries, um, I felt that I'd really got into my stride with it. And um, I can, I just want to keep, I want to do more of the same in a way, but I don't want to overdo any one thing. So I started off by saying, by deciding initially because I felt that this was going to be a series that I would enjoy. I started off by saying, right, I'm only going to do seven and then I'm going to stop. So it's the same kind of principle as John Cleese with 40 Towers, you know, saying, well, no, we're not, we're not going to let this series run and run because then it will um, become diluted. It will lose its power. And we've all, we can all cite series of books and series of television programs and films and so forth that just 
run out of juice, really. Um, and and I don't want to be writing the same book over and over again either. Um, so when, within this planned series of seven, there's a there's an overall story arc of the character development. They're very character driven, um, as well as having sort of jolly adventures and mysteries to solve. Um, so that's why I'm now planning a second series, and I've got an idea for a third series as well. This first, I'm, I'm writing in my comfort zone in some respects, in that this first series of novels is set in a Cotswold village, fictitious Cotswold village, but very similar to where I live, although the characters are all made up. But having lived here for 27 years, I know a lot about village life mm-hmm. <laughs> that I could share. Um, it's quite funny because sometimes people read them and they say, oh, how lovely, wouldn't it be nice to live in an idyllic village like that? And I say, well, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and townies who never set foot in the countryside, they don't believe that these places still exist but they absolutely do I, and one of the one of the reasons that i wanted to write this series was to celebrate the joy of community life really um and so the second series that i'm going to write is going to be set in a boarding school girls boarding school but primarily in the staff room it's about the staff rather than about the children and that's because i spent 13 years working at western Burt school the girls boarding school um and then the third series i'm planning to write is going to be set in uh, the office of a charity um, but it will be not a wonderful charity like the one that I worked for at, at, at Read Food Good. It's going to be a corrupt charity with an evil man at its helm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so drawing on lots of lots of personal experiences. Um, and I think it's pretty inevitable at some point there'll be a series about uh, a PR office as well. <laughs> um, so I'm being a bit lazy in a way that, in that I'm not... I, I am starting to do more research, actually, than I used to do in the first few books. Um so and, and in fact, I've I've already broke my rule because, with I'm going to write a, a, an eighth book that's going to be set in Inverness because the the parents of my heroine, um, Sophie Sayers, I planted in the very first book that her parents lived in Inverness, thinking that if I ever wanted to write a book set in Inverness, because I love Inverness, I go there quite a lot, um, that that would give me the opportunity. So there's going to be that, and there's going to be a couple of other spin-offs. But I'm going to start alternating now so that I'm not just becoming a sort of a, you know, a one-hit wonder. Um, I want to diversify. Your Sophie Sayers books are very strongly branded. If I saw those at a bookshop, I would not even think that they were self-published. They're extremely strong. Um, you look like you pull out all the stops on those. Yeah, I've I've been really lucky. And again, this partly comes from the benefits of being part of the Alliance of Independent Authors, because I can see all the all great examples of people self-publishing really well. And also because there's this partnership network of uh, members, uh, partner members network, um, I've been able to um, talent spot some really good cover designers and uh, for this series I'm using a lovely lady called Rachel Lawston who's based in London lawstondesigns.com and uh, she has although she's freelance she's also works for lots of the big publishing companies so um, I'm on her website as a, as a case study of design alongside people like Mallory Blackman Terry Pratchett all these people that she's designed for. Well, we've had the most problematical Skype call ever while I've been recording with Debbie today. Uh, but, but things like this happen, I guess. Never mind. We're now on the phone. And uh, Debbie, before you were rudely cut off, you were talking to me about the benefits of having these great covers on your books. Yeah, it, it was really it was really exciting, actually, because I had a sort of a vague idea of what I wanted. Um, but I knew I didn't have the skills or the knowledge to create 
covers myself. I, I, for my short stories, I had managed to uh, cobble together covers um, on canva.com, which is great if you really don't have a budget um, or if you just want to have a bit of a play. But I wanted to, I knew I was putting my heart and soul into the, writing these novels and I wanted to have a really good cover design and branding for it. And um, so I, I gave a brief to Rachel Lawson, who I'd seen done really lovely work for other authors, and I thought she would be the right um, person. Because my stories are very British, they're very English, and I wanted a very British designer. And Rachel is based in London. And um, so I knew she, and she travels a lot. She loves walking, she loves the countryside, she loves the Cotswolds. So I knew she would really get what I was writing about. And um, so we had a couple of discussions and a couple of um, sort of rough designs before our conversation arrived at this sort of whole concept. So I've got the concept going through. With, she's branded it beautifully with the, with the typeface for the, for the author name and for the titles. And, um, and because the, the seven novels are running the course of a year, of a village year, from one summer to the next, she, there's a lot of scope for having changing, sort of ringing the changes by having different seasons on the front covers. And um, we wanted, I wanted the right balance of looking jolly, but also a little bit sinister. So we have a little sort of black, on the first book, there's sort of black bunting draped across the top. And then the next one, which is set in autumn, we've got, got bare black branches of trees across the top. Um, so you've got the, 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 a good mix between jolly and sinister. And Rachel just caught that absolutely right. So um, it's, it's been a really good partnership. And to anyone else working with a, design, with a book designer, um, well, first of all, choose someone who is a proper book designer, who is a specialist book designer, because it's a real art. And secondly, I'd say, don't be afraid to have a conversation with them, because you know your book best, they know their, their design art best. And, and it, it should be a true partnership where you're bringing together the, bringing together the best of both of you. Um, and it's very rewarding when it works out like that. So um, I know there's lots of other cover designers who are great, partner members of Ally who could do just as good a job but I'm really really pleased with what Rachel's done and looking forward to working further with her. And those books are very English do you though find that it attracts an international audience? Yeah I've, I've there are huge swathes of readers who particularly look out for English village mysteries um, <clears throat> thanks to the likes of Agatha Christie for <laughs> paving the way on, on that um, and there are occasionally people who don't quite get the humour, but um, nobody's going to get everybody's humour anyway. Um, but I've, <clears throat> I thought about tr trying to make them a little bit more international. And in fact, I've always been told that from when I was writing short stories very early on, that I am a very English writer. Um, and I thought, well, now I've got to be what I am. And this is part of the joy of self-publishing as well, because I can make that decision. And if it, if it um, loses me some international readers well that's my lookout i think if i tried to make make my writing more international and less english then it would not be what it is you know it would not be me um so at the moment uh i'm promoting it more in the uk than in the in the us but it's selling you know they're all selling nicely both sides of the atlantic so um and I think it's I think it's very natural that it would sell more in the UK because it is so British. Um, but I'm getting good good sales in the states as well so, and elsewhere in the world. So um, even in places like India and Japan, I've had a few sales. So 
Um, I th- something about the, the Cotswolds as well, the Cotswolds setting, you know, the quintessential English village charm that is a pretty international language of its own in a way. So I, I do have to make sure, I do have a few beta readers um, who I test out some of the colloquialisms to make sure I'm not being completely obscure. <laughs> now, um, I'm very aware of you uh, working hard to promote your books through festivals and through uh, face-to-face contact and radio, so more traditional techniques. But do you do all the kind of super cool indie stuff like Amazon ads, Facebook ads, the email list, all of that stuff? I'm into the Amazon ads. Um, I've had some good successes with the Amazon advertising, both in the States and in the UK. Um, And those those have been a game changer for me. I haven't gone into Facebook advertising yet, but it's something I'm looking at. Although I must admit, it just seems to be a bit of a no-brainer to me that you are likely to sell more books on Amazon because people are going onto Amazon's book sections with the intent of buying books. Whereas if you're on Facebook, you're not so likely to be there looking for books to read. You're looking looking to um, bond with your friends and to catch up on sort of gossip and news and that sort of thing rather than being there with the in- sitting there with the intention of spending money and buying books. But at the same time, I've seen some very successful um, Facebook ads for books similar to mine um, in a similar genre that have made me sit up and take notice. So that's something I think this, this, kind, of, this kind of genre lends itself well to, to, to adverts with lovely sort of Cotswold photographs and props and things all set up. Um, and, and you know, there are some good keywords that you can pick out about the, the joys of village life and, of, and the joys of a good murder in, in that nice <laughs> village. So, so I think it's it's something that lends itself well to Facebook advertising, and so that's what I'm going to look at next. I'm also on my list of things to do this year is to um, turn the first three into a box set, which is another cool indie thing to do. And I'm also going to apply for BookBub, which I haven't done yet. I was I've been waiting to get sort of the whole series going, uh, and now that I've got four books, I think I've got more than enough to start doing that kind of thing with. Um, I would say to people who are looking at Amazon advertising, it's hard to make it profitable unless you're going to get sell through of a series or of a set of books in a, in um, the same kind of category. If you've got one standalone book. Um, Really, what you're doing with Amazon advertising is giving them back some of the ro- some of your royalty share in order to promote your book. So instead of taking the 70% on your ebook, if you're paying them um, paying them back sort of 40%, 30, 40% um, of the cover price for your advert, then it means you're in effect reducing your own royalty to say 30%. Now that's still a lot more than you would make as a trade published author per book. Um, and if the Amazon, it's a question of doing the doing the sums really. You know, if you can sell very many more books by advertising than you would by not advertising, then you're still going to make more money. But it's a it's always a careful balancing act. I don't look at my figures as assiduously as some people do. Some people get I'm not really a big sort of spreadsheety type, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I know some people spend a lot of time poring over their spreadsheets daily to see to, to sort of tweak their advertising. Um, on Amazon. I'm not doing that, but I am sticking with the Amazon advertising for the time being um, because it has made a big difference. The other thing that made a big difference to my sales for the series was to get the fourth book out. People have said to me often um, that they've seen their 
their sales go up once they've got the third book in a series, then the fifth book, then the seventh book, and so on. Why it should always be the odd numbers, I don't know, um, but that's what they say. Um, But for me, it was the fourth book, um, possibly because the third book was set at Christmas, and so it seems a bit bit more sort of specific to that time of year. But my fourth book is where the sales really started to go, zonking up. and they're still they're still steadily climbing, so that's that's great. But now I want to be starting the whole the whole business going again with another series as well. So um, yeah, a bit more sort of belt and braces. So I'm not dependent on the success of one series. Um, but it's the the first four books I wrote and published quite quickly. But I'm I'm now I'm just getting a bit exhausted. <laughs> now I'm going to take my time a little bit more over than now I've got the first lot set up. Um, and so hoping to publish two Sophie Sayers books a year in future and um, maybe one or two a year in other series. But we'll see how that goes and how, how, how easily I find it to say no to some of the other great things that I get, <laughs> get invited to. It's, it's always a priorities game. I'm guessing that because you do so much face-to-face marketing that you also, um, paperbacks are quite big for you in your business as well. Yeah, I I do. Um, I sell probably online. Actually, I sell probably about twenty percent of my sales on the novels are paperback, which I think is quite high. It is, yeah. um, it's it's partly I think also because of the nature of the genre. You know, cozy mystery. A lot of the it, it, it sounds a bit of a sweeping statement, but I think a lot of people who read that kind of book like a good old fashioned paperback, which is which is fine. Um, I love traditional bookshops, I love bricks and mortar bookshops and I'm selling um, a scattering of books through through bookshops and that but that's starting to grow as well. So uh, for example over this weekend somebody sent a friend of mine, um, author friend in Cambridge, Susan Grossi, she sent me a photograph, she just spotted two of my books in Heather's bookshop in Cambridge. Now I have no connection to Heather's um, and they I don't know where they got them from but they but they just ordered them in and got them on the shelf which was fantastic um and so i'm um more than happy to have more bookshop distribution that way um although it's hard to you can't you obviously it takes a lot more effort um and a lot more time to get uh, a bookshop presence in bricks and mortar shops than it does um online because you have mileage and travel time and all that sort of thing to take into account as well um, but I love bookshops and want to support them, and if, and so you know if there's mutual gain to be had, I'm happy to be involved. I must talk to you about the Hawkesbury Upton Literature Festival, <laughs> where, where, which you founded, yeah. I believe. I did, yeah. That's, that's the thing I do in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, was it just like a, you were bored one day, something like that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was saying to, the, to um, my former boss at Readathon, I said, oh, um, by the way, I've just founded a literature festival. She said, of course you did. <laughs> yeah, it was probably pretty inevitable. Um, yeah, now this is, this is quite interesting, actually, because it, it came as a sort of an offshoot of what I was doing for, at, at Read for Good, because whereas for children's books, um, and if you've got kids, I'm sure your kids will have been involved in World Book Day at school, where um, it's the first Thursday of March in the UK, it's, strangely, it's different in other countries, although it's called World Book Day. Um, and... Um, there's a big celebration of books and reading for that day, um, and everybody is dressed up as characters in their favourite books and all that sort of thing. Um, 
And a few years ago, about five, six years ago, there was launched an equivalent for adults called World Book Night, which was to encourage adults to get back into reading and embrace the joy of reading, um, whether they'd never really been readers, whether they'd never become competent readers, or whether they just didn't give themselves permission to read books because they had such busy lives. And um, there were events going on all over the place for this. And I thought, oh, I think I'll be able to have one of those. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just rustle something up, you know, a few, few author friends in the, in the village pub um, for a couple of hours. You know, that would be our, our gesture. Now, I did that. The first one was four years ago. It was meant to be two hours in the pub. It ended up being from six o'clock in the evening till chucking out time <laughs> with about 30 authors. And uh, it's all free. Everything is free. People gave their time for free. And the principle was on the, on the same principle as um, World Book Night in that it's, it's meant to be super accessible. So everything is free. Um, and rather than focusing on um, sort of celebrities and big-name writers, um, as the big festivals do, um, you know, Cheltenham Lit Fest and all that lot, um, I wanted to focus on interesting things from the reader's point of view. So I had panel discussions about topics that were interesting um, and sort of very broad and very accessible, like how many words does makes a good story um, or from um, how do you like your mystery, um, cosy crime or Nordic noir and sort of debate between different authors who are writing in different, different um, areas. And so after that first, Thursday night, um, people in the village said, well, you're going to do it again now every year, aren't you? Uh, so I said, well, okay. <laughs> and it turned into a, a, a marathon, um, sort of one-day event. I'm, I'm sticking to just one day because I can't cope with more than that. But it's first thing in the morning to last thing at night. Um, about three, three or four different events all going on in parallel at once, series of, of readings, talks, workshops. Uh, we added in um, an outreach session to the local old people's home where we sent in poets to read to them. We added an art exhibition this year. So each year it gets a little bit bigger, a little bit better. Um, next year we're probably going to add in a poetry slam and some more workshops. Um, there's a children's tent. Um, and it's just great fun. Um, so that's once a year. Um, completely exhausting, but terrific fun on so many levels. Um, it will always be free, uh, and it will always be very unstuffy and very good fun. Um, and I've, I think it's the kind of festival that's actually springing up in quite a lot of places now. I think there's a big appetite for it. It's the antidote to the big expensive festivals where you go and spend 15 quid to see Stephen Fry talk yet again, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, which is great. I mean, I go to I go to that kind of festival too. Um, but it's not everybody's cup of tea, it's not in everybody's budget. Um, and it's just nice to have things at a local level, you know, homegrown things and your local libraries and your local bookshops and all that sort of thing. The question I must ask you while I've got you on the podcast, and pretend Orna Ross isn't listening to your answer here, <laughs> is w- would you ever go trad? Um, have you always been Indian? Will you always be Indie? I think I will always be Indie because... Um, I think there are fewer and fewer um, benefits of going trad. I think the constraints that they put upon you, they, because I'm used to making my own decisions um, about you know, what the titles are, what the covers are like, um, what the storyline is like, 
I would find it very difficult now to have somebody say, oh, no, you've got to call it this title instead, or, oh, no, the, the book should end here, or, oh, no, that, that you've got to have a happy ending there instead of a, a trauma. And, and I would find that difficult. I think the financial rewards that you get from being a traditionally published author now are diminishing. I think the opportunities are getting smaller and smaller as, as traditional publishers become risk-averse. Now, that doesn't mean that I um, don't respect authors who do want to go that route. If that is their ambition and that's what they want to do, that's absolutely fine. Um, and I celebrate for them when, when they get their contracts. You know, there's, there's often people on Facebook and in the Ally Group and, and elsewhere saying, oh, I've just got signed up for something or other. Um, the, only way, the only way that I would consider going trad would be for selling foreign rights and associated rights. So I had an approach recently from a, a French publishing company um, who wanted, who were interested in the Sophie Sayers theory um, in uh, translation into French. Now, it's quite a small market, French language, and it would it would be expensive to get the books translated. Um, and even if I had a really good translation, my French is not good enough to market them, and it's just too many more things to do. You know, so I would be happy to to to, to sell rights, restricted rights like that, um, on a traditional basis. But I would not. I'm not actively seeking agenting or um, traditional publishing contracts. Um, I guess in the real world, everybody has their price. So if you know, if if um, Penguin turned around to me and said, "Oh, we give you a million quid for this." <laughs> So um, developing that that idea, I, I, when I think of your novels, I'm thinking Midsummer Nur uh, Murders. I'm thinking Heartbeat. Yeah. They make very good TV, don't they? Would if TV came knocking at the door, would you be interested? TV, TV, I would consider um, if if it was on the right basis. I would be very unhappy if they, if um, I wouldn't sell the rights without having some control over. You know, I wouldn't want the characters completely changed or the um, the setting completely changed. I'm very wary of what happened to M.C. Beaton of Hamish Macbeth and Agatha Raisin fame. She had her fingers very badly burnt when, oh, about 20 years ago now, They they um, she sold the rights for her Hamish Macbeth series, which is now about 25 books long, I think, to, I can't remember which television station, um, television company, but they they the book, the series, is completely different to the nature of the books. She got t a terrible deal and didn't get repeat rights or anything like that and was so embittered by the whole experience that the next book that she wrote after that was called Death of a Scriptwriter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. um, whereas she's now sold the Agatha Raisin stories to, I think, to 
Sky, I think it's the Sky, some production company anyway, and um, and she's very happy, and she's got a lot more, you know, she's shown pictures of her in um, sort of script meetings, editorial meetings with the script writers and so forth, and so she's doing, I don't know what she's, how she's doing financially out of that, but she's certainly got more control, and the book, the, the films are much closer to her television characters, although still lots of significant differences, and I think I would find that really irksome. Um, so um, I, I do. I, people have said all along that they would they would make a great sort of Sunday evening television series. Um, so I would not be averse to discussion, but I would that would not mean that I would be won over by um, too easily by by a suggested contract. So, um, but yeah, I would I wouldn't rule it out. <laughs> so my final question to you then is mm. that you're you're ideally placed I feel because you work with the Alliance of Independent Authors and have done for so long you mix with so many different authors through the festivals and the work that you do um, where do you think it's all going in 10 years time what's it going to look like the publishing landscape um, I think that the publishing the traditional publishing companies will have learned a lot from the indie authors from the uh, innovations in marketing i think they are way behind us even with um things that seem quite old school now like um ebook marketing they still haven't they still have ridiculous pricing policies and they're still trying to perpetuate their old model of selling mostly hardbacks and paperbacks um they're doing crazy things like pricing ebooks to be almost as expensive as, as paperbacks um for example, um, I think that the unless there is some reinstitution of the netbook agreement, I think, which which I don't think will happen, I think trade publishing companies will become increasingly pressed for um, financial reasons. I mean, they're already um, hoist by their own petard in selling cheap editions of their bestsellers into supermarkets and cutting down their own profitability. Um, I think trade publishing will become more and more specialised and focusing just on what they know they can make big bucks out of, which is going to be celebrity books, TV series and film tie-ins. Um, I think there will be much less stigma about indie authors. I hope, I would love to think that in 10 years' time, we will all just be calling ourselves authors who won't be saying, I'm self-published, I'm indie, or I'm trade-published, or that awful phrase, hybrid, which I think makes it sound like an author who's been genetically engineered. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm hoping that there will become much more homogenisation, and I and I hope, um, okay, is what I would like to think, but I do generally think that um, quality will rise to the surface. A lot of people who thought that they could make a quick buck out of self-publishing very badly will lose interest and realise that actually it's not just an easy option, it's actually a very hard job to do it well and requires a lot of time and patience and knowledge and investment. Um, and so I think the, the, the dross will fall away and the best self-published books will be indistinguishable from um, trade-published books. I can't see a way around the distribution problem that we have getting into bookstores um, immediately, but I'm very hopeful from um, things that Ingram Spark are doing with uh, making it easier for bookstores to get hold of, of self-published books. I think one of the great things that's happened with um, bookstores to, to make it more hopeful for indie authors is that they have become 
much more dynamic, much more, they see themselves as hubs and best ones see themselves as hubs of the community, holding lots of events, involving authors, hosting book groups and author groups and all that sort of thing. Um, and there are some really good relationships happening now between indie authors at a local level with, with bookstores. It would be nice to be to see that happening with some of the big chains. But like Walter says, I don't think that's going to happen. I, don't, I think they are too ingrained in the old ways. So I think we'll get lots of lots of indie authors doing building good relationships at a local level with bookstores, but I can't see the the, the um, wider distribution happening in bookstores. But it would be great if that if that did happen through what Ingram Spark are doing with their their innovative iPage service. Over the last few years, there have been so many reports about how in, in the papers, say like on, on, online about you know the the rise and fall of the ebook, the rise and fall of the paperback. Nobody's reading anymore. Everybody's reading. Reading is a new sex. You know, it just goes. As a journalist, you know these things will go around in circles. I don't think that the love of reading is ever going to go away. I think there will be a backlash against um, so much um, people, people spending so much time online. I think books will continue to be popular, um, whether in e-form or audio. Indeed, because audio is getting much bigger, um, and in in print. So I think. Um, yeah, I think the future is bright. However, you however you write and however you publish, um, but the, the the people who are going to be the most successful are the ones who are ready to adapt to the changes. That was author Debbie Young, and you can find out more about Debbie and everything that we've been chatting about in that interview by taking a look at selfpublishingjourneys.com and heading for this week's show notes. The next interview episode will be released on Monday, the 3rd of September. Remember, we're on our summer break at the moment, so interviews are monthly until October the 1st, and diary episodes will continue at their regular weekly intervals. Now, in that next episode on the 3rd of September, I'm going to be talking to Northeast writer Peter Mortimer, who I worked with earlier in the year on the New Writing North project. Peter is a poet, playwright, journalist and publisher, and he's a completely different story to tell from what we might normally expect to hear on this podcast. Before that, though, I'll have the regular diary episode that's coming up this Saturday on the 11th of August. So until then, have a great week of writing. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.